Lit House is a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. In this episode, Nazmi Al-Jube, historian and archaeologist, and Hind Kuri, former Minister of Jerusalem Affairs for the Palestinian Authorities, talk about the current situation in Jerusalem. The conversation is led by senior researcher at the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Marta Hayan Engdal, and took place on March 6, 2017, as part of the yearly Saladin Days. I wrote this poem during the 2014 war on Gaza, and it's dedicated to the children who lost their lives and the parents who had to bury them. Bring your camera. Bring your candles and spotlight to highlight. Bring your focus to hashtag anniversary. Every day, Gaza. Bring your reporters your journalists, your moving infographics. Right. Abu Muhammad sits on the balcony, cradling the head of Muhammad. Sorry, the photo of the head of Muhammad. Talk about bomb shelters and war sirens in Sidorot and Tel Aviv. Call it neutrality. Talk about your five dead and your iron dome. Call it objective reality. Bring your billion dollar pledges and your aid caravans, your monitoring sheets, Excel reports, and donor requirements. Call that accountability. Right. Abu Muhammad sits on the balcony hopelessly, smokes a hopeless cigarette and talks about lack of hope. This one, is human interest story. And when we invite you into our rubble homes for tea and bread, you call it generosity. And when we are strong about our suffering, you call that resilience. Write this, 51 days, 2,000 dead, 10,000 wounded. Abu Muhammad says, my boys, they took a ball to the beach and they came back bodies. How can we remember what we can't forget? Thank you. Thank you very much, Jihan. Uh, I knew this was a good idea. I could never have uh, summarized those awful 50 days uh, in a more uh, moving and uh, apt way. Um, and so it takes us uh, straight back to the war, right? This, um, particularly the end scene in Jahan's poem about the boys on the beach. Um, and just this week, the Israeli report, the evaluation on the war and the government's uh, handling of the war was released. And the state controller, Joseph Shafira, said he criticized the government for failing to consider any diplomatic alternative just before the military operation. And the cabinet had been warned repeatedly of the implications of the worsening situation in Gaza. Water, infrastructure, sewage problems, electricity, very high unemployment levels and the sense of being choked that this could lead to a violent eruption. Now, this Israeli report uh, has been somewhat delayed, we have to uh, say. Hint, would you, from your perspective, the road to that war, how does it look? Well, um, well I want to first thank you for having us here. It's wonderful. And I want to thank Jehan for her point because she actually brought the issues home. Finally, what really matters in our life, in our world, is either the suffering or the relieving of that suffering, if we're human enough. And in Gaza, I mean, this was the third war within, is it five years? 
it's, you know, when, when the third world broke up in 2014, I couldn't believe it was really happening. I mean, because the first Gaza war in 2008-9 actually was enacted on television. You know, we spent days watching the horrors of children being, you know, blown up and etc. So, and we heard the stories and there was the Goldstone report. And yet the world have accepted a third war on a population of like a million and a half who are in a total prison, I mean literally in the 21st century, that Gaza is under hermetic siege, with the Israelis choosing, saying, no, we don't want them to starve, so you know, we let them spaghetti in, but we won't let rice in, and, and that the world could accept it. And this is the story of Palestine in general. I mean, the question of the Palestinian people is that the world knows, and somehow the bottom line is, I know there's a lot of sympathy and statements and policies, the bottom line is nobody's doing anything about it. I don't want to repeat the stories of the Gaza wars. It's not only the, the third one. Uh, they're all documented. And, and I think we need to keep raising the question, okay, so what now? How can Gaza remain today under the siege. And the, you know, the, the whole, politically how it was viewed and mediatically, that these are you know, two sides, warring sides. So the Gazans were throwing these rockets on the Israelis. You know, I mean, like we are Gaza under siege is a match to the Israeli army. And, and, and we, the media keep hitting at us, this Kafkaesque reality. Uh, and politicians want to say, no, no, it's equal. So beyond the, the pain of people, there is this surrealistic way of dealing with the issue of Palestine in general, but I would have to say Gaza in particular, because Gaza is being targeted for a complete destruction of its society. I mean, nothing is left. Infrastructure, private sector, economy, education, health. And, and actually, Gaza is a big refugee camp. I mean, most of the population are refugees, 75% refugees from 1948. And I've been to Gaza. They live, you know, on the sand, basically. And I used to work for the UN in the early 90s when I crossed the Gaza Ares checkpoint, which is like an SS tunnel, you know, from some concentration camp. You hear the echo of your feet when you walk. And I used to leave Gaza uh, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon when all the workers were coming in. And I looked in people's faces. I couldn't catch anybody's eyes. And I felt, my goodness, it scared me because I think they, they were so, they felt humiliated and dehumanized. And, and, and again, that's part of the story. I don't want to take the whole show. But, you know, Gaza maybe is a lesson in where is our humanity today? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think... Um, in the aftermath of this war, Nazme, this uh, conflict rather slipped off the radar, uh, on the international radar. And particularly with things uh, getting worse and worse in Syria uh, and in the region at large, this Israeli-Palestinian conflict has uh, disappeared. But the situation in Gaza has not improved. Rather, the opposite is true. Um, the, the UN uh, uh, authored a report recently that uh, had the title Gaza, a livable place, and there's a question mark uh, at the end of that title. And by the worst calculations of the UN, uh, they say that this place can become unlivable by 2020. 2020, it's not science fiction, right? It's, this is here, this is right now. Is it, I don't want to be sounding the alarm uh, if it's not correct, but it seems naive to think that there won't be another round. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be in Oslo. Uh, and you know, Oslo is associated with us, with the Oslo Agreement 1991. And one of the things that are still tangible in Gaza is Oslo Agreement. But let me say that uh, why should we wonder if tomorrow a new war will begin against Gaza? You know, now we are celebrating uh, 50 years Israeli occupation of West Bank and Gaza Strip, including East Jerusalem. I'm always saying when the Israelis occupied East Jerusalem, where I'm living, I was 12 years old. 
and now I have grandchildren and I'm still under the Israeli occupation. So people um, are trying their best to resist, to get rid of the occupation, and I think this is their absolute right. And the Israelis will continue to depress Gaza Strip, as well as of the West Bank, uh, because they, they, have, they have no strategy to finish this occupation. Their strategy is uh, crisis management. You know, whenever Hamas is playing a little bit crazy uh, in Gaza, the Israelis will open a war against them. And uh, they will, this war is containable. It is very, uh, I will say, cheap war. It is unilateral war. Any kind of uh, toys, rockets, comes out of Gaza. The Israelis can live with that. It's not a big issue, except with the, in the propaganda, in the media, it is uh, uh, raised. The poor Israelis are suffering from the Qassam rockets coming from Gaza, which is 99% are falling in the sand of the desert of, uh, of the south. Uh, and uh, I'm not saying that it is uh, just an easy thing, but we have to differentiate between M16, uh, 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 sorry, uh, uh, um, what is the, the name of the planes? Uh, F-16. F <laughs> and now we have, I don't know, 18 or 19. I'm not an expert in weapon. <laughs> we have to differentiate between Qassam rocket, which goes and flies right and left in the, uh, in, in the sky and falls in the desert, and a very sophisticated weapon uh, attacking Gaza Strip, and uh, uh, where uh, you, you cannot hide anything from the Israeli planes and from the Israeli cameras watching the people 24 hours. And I have to admit that part of this war, I'm not saying everything, but part of, it, of this war against Gaza Strip is done for the Isra interior Israeli consumption and for politi politicians to survive and to gain more and more uh, votes from uh, certain uh, 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 public. So I do expect that the, second, the fourth war is not far away from us. I can say that a lot of political crisis inside Israel where the war on Gaza would help solving some of these, of these conflicts within the Israeli society. Again, I, the Gaza Strip is not just really a land, but it's a land with full of people. There is no enough food for them. There is over 80% unemployment. They are living in cavage, totally surrounded either from Egyptian side or from the Israeli side. And they are really hopeless people. So I can imagine that uh, we have, as a Palestinian society, have a lot of problems in Gaza. We have to admit we have, this is a very, um, I would say, uh, 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 ideally place for uh, a growth of extremism. If you have such a high poverty, starvage, and you have overcrowded uh, uh, refugee camps. Over 70% of the population of Gaza are refugees and with no, with no perspective, with no horizon, with no uh, hope, I can imagine that some of these people will play also crazy, not all, uh, uh, only against the Israeli uh, uh, occupation, but also against the Palestinian Authority. Yeah, yeah. Just as uh, there's a certain domestic dimension to the Israeli side of wars, there's certainly a, an internal Palestinian dimension to uh, escalation as, as well. You mentioned that uh, this is a cheap war that uh, with the Iron Dome, Israel can live with this uh, situation, more or less. I mean, it is uh, costly. War is always costly. They don't pay for it, remember. But... Uh, uh, but I was, uh, I wanted us to uh, move from Gaza and uh, move a little bit uh, more north um, into the city you mean where to Tel Aviv, to Tel Aviv, <laughs> okay. where everything is perfect and the sun is bright. Yeah. Um, but it seems to me um, that what Israel uh, and Israeli society has a much harder time living with. Um, if, if it is right that they can live with uh, the occasional war in Gaza, is the violence that have uh, uh, 
erupted in Jerusalem and in the West Bank and in Israel proper, um, aside, outside the East Jerusalem as well. There have been um, a number of attacks, and a lot of these uh, attackers or uh, suspect, suspicions of attackers end up being shot and killed. What does this do to the Palestinian society? Hint. Mm -hmm. What does it do to Palestinian mothers and fathers and kids? Mm. You know, you're... Uh with the poetry and with you saying that, you take me to the emotional dimension of the situation in Palestine, which is extremely painful. And we need to consciously, on a daily basis, overcome the emotion to try to understand what is going on and find ways to get out of it. Uh, this particular, it's not exactly an intifada, but in a way it's an uprising. It's complaining about, not complaining, rebelling against a very difficult reality. Uh, what happens in Gaza for us is what's happening to us. What's happening in Jerusalem for Gazans, it's what's happening again to all of us or in the West Bank. And yes, the Gaza situation has been, is, is, is calamitous. It's, it's so inhuman. But let's remember also that Jerusalem is an extremely dense city. I'm sure Danny will agree with me. Uh, it oozes with tension. I mean, actually, many people say we, we can't stand being there. Now, I see it reflected in the faces of young people. I really see it. And, I mean, I'm 63 years old, so I, I, I know how young people looked when in the 60s or 70s or 80s or today. And I see the change of so much tension so much violence. I mean, these young people grew from the first intifada. Now they are like my eldest son is 38 years old. He was 10 in the first intifada. These people grew, and my son was also here, uh, you know, with the army uh, between our feet, and they are guilty the minute they are on the street. And, and they, it must be horribly, you know, they're filled with fear. I mean, these are soldiers, and we've seen targeted killings, not only by the, these young children who were being shot, you know, in the last, since 2014 and on, or since last fall, uh, we have seen judicial killings throughout. I mean, that was like normal standard. That was, somehow was allowed. And what, what is worse now is the occupation has deepened to the extent that, you know, while if the authority is still speaking of, and we want a two-state solution, but the reality on the ground is telling us we're being ridiculous. I mean, this isn't happening. And especially that Israel's will is overpowering over the rest of the world. I mean, every time an American president or vice president goes there, they declare new settlements. And we know the argument. So bottom line is, with more home demolitions, the wall that separated fragmented Palestinians from Palestinians, you know, all over, the imprisonment of people and activists, the imprisonment of young people, the shooting of these young little children, who perhaps, I don't know, the investigation of these issues. We don't know because they're shot, so we, we have no information. But Gidon Levy, Amir Haas, you know, spoke about that. This, this were probably, you know, they're not always correct, these stories. And yet every day I remember in that period, the horror of that period, every day I get the Haaretz alert, and it was another young terrorist doing this and that. Um, well, living a situation of deepening occupation, uh, having lived the war, three wars on Gaza, having uh, this fear of just, you know, the tension of the city, uh, and the hopelessness. I mean, again, I don't know how can young people live today in, our, in Palestine. They have absolutely no perspective. I mean, no opportunities. No vision. We don't know where we're going, right or left. One state, two state, uh, more, you know, annexation, uh, another Daesh war. I don't know. We, we don't, and these people don't know. You can't do this to young people. And the occupation has been not only an occupation of land for all these years. It's an occupation of the identity. It's an appropriation of the culture. And, you know, 50 years of that... Of course, young people's sense of identity got confused. And we also know that after the 67 war, the identity has slowly but surely uh, have been uh, um, transformed into a religious identity. So 
I'm either Jewish or Christian or, or Muslim, and again, another source of confusion for these young children. It must be a very painful situation. I wasn't surprised to see that happening. And I have to add another dimension. Let me tell you, these young people are very much disappointed in us. I, I mean, I, maybe I shouldn't be telling too many stories. I was passing, you know, our daily demonstrations almost in Bethlehem and fighting with the, with the soldiers at Rachel's tomb. I was passing and the boy was on the pavement just barely can breathe from the tear gas. And I said, let, can I take you to a hospital? Please let me see what I can do. Oh, he gave me that look. I didn't sleep for days. Like, what, what can you be good at? I mean, what you're good at anyway? Like, you know, he, he looked at me with so much disdain. I mean, he could barely breathe. I was, I was very hurt and I was disappointed that, okay, what did I do all my life? Just end up disappointing our own children. So there's also this dimension to it. So again, these are lost children. Uh, the situation cannot go on like this, but it is going on like this. And as we know, the perspective and the horizon doesn't look brilliant either. Yeah. And is this the impression you're in the, at the Birzeit University, so you're surrounded with the, the young uh, generation? Um, I would go back to Jerusalem again, hence it is also my city. And uh, I'll tell you that uh, the young generation in Jerusalem, which are a mirror more or less to the rest of the population in the country, they have the feeling that uh, there is nothing to lose. And they want to change the realities in any form. They are ready for everything, including my students. Uh, it was, uh, uh, I think, the growing hope after Oslo agreement among uh, the young people and the disappointment afterwards uh, had converted a lot of them into people who are ready to do anything just to change their situation. You know. I remember my Jerusalem in the 60s, which was a bit bourgeois town, really middle class town, which is converted in the last 50 years into slums. More than 80% of East Jerusalem population, which are about 370,000, were converted into very poor people. Even according to the Israeli statistics, 79.5 or 4 percent are living below the poverty line in East Jerusalem. Correct. This is not the Palestinian culture. This is not the Arab mentality who converted them into, into this uh, uh, form, but rather really the Israeli occupation. They thought all through the time, if you dismantle these people from their dignity, from their social status, from their infrastructure, from their culture, you can control them. The result is totally the opposite. These young people are resisting. Now the question is um, whether do I agree with their, this, with their form of resistance. This is not important. Uh, this is not about rationality. I think uh, 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 these young people are not expecting your rationality or my <laughs> rationality. They think that they can, change, they can change the situation. Sometimes we cannot really frame these people in any kind of frame. The last attack which took place on the southern mountain of Jerusalem where uh, a Palestinian with his track uh, uh, went against Israeli soldiers yeah, with, uh, with his lorry. He was about 40 years old, had four children, well established. Uh, uh, he, he owns his work. So why he did it? Nobody can tell you why. Nobody can tell you what went in his mind in the last second uh, that uh, took him there. I think... Uh, for us, as well as for the Israelis, we have the, to raise the question, why? And if we continue to escape from the, from, from the answer, uh, we will not find solution. The answer, this occupation had lasted for too long. More than uh, already 50 years of occupation, enough is enough. The people will continue to play cra crazy, either in Gaza Strip no, or, or in Jerusalem or in the, in the rest of, of, the, West, of the West Bank. 
you can't imagine what does it mean for my generation that 72% of my generation were at least once of their life inside the Israeli jails, including myself. So, so this kind of experience will, uh, will develop in different ways. Some of my students are managing to contain their interior violence. Some of them cannot. And believe me, it's not only the, uh, that we uh, see the, the violence only against the Israelis, but inside our society. You know, uh, uh, inside our society, there is a lot of violence that we did not manage to get rid of it. Uh, uh, the intense situation, the depression for so many years will create automatically interior uh, violence. This violence can break against the Israelis directly, but also against the Palestinian Authority or against the social establishment or religious establishment. So we have a lot of violence inside our society. Some of it, some of it uh, is directed against the Israelis, but a lot of it is directed interiorly against our own domestic society. May I add something Absolutely. to that, which was brilliant. I mean, I can't catch up with this guy. But um, my fear is that sometimes that this kind of Palestinian violence is wanted. And why? I, mean, I, I was very impressed by Gidon Levy, who last year in the Washington Report, he said, speaking about the situation, and he, went, and he was asked, how come Israel succeeded to maintain 50 years of occupation? He said, because they're the chosen people. They are the perpetual victims, you know, anti-Semitism and all that, and they manage to dehumanize Palestinian. So if this is part of a, a way to keep the situation going, and especially present Israel to present itself as a victim, it was very important that Palestinians are dehumanized and presented as terrorists. And we know, I mean, we walk around the world, and they're surprised we even walk on two legs, you know? I mean, you know, that we're all terrorists, basically. So... And that scares me because there may be a policy that seeks to perpetuate the violence to perpetuate the status quo because there is no strategy, as Nazmi rightly said, and, and the best thing to do is to maintain the status quo because we can't be absorbed into Israel. Israel doesn't want to absorb us as citizens. Uh, they don't want to give us a state or be sovereign. Or, so... so so what is it other than this, this score they want to keep or manage another transfer? Anyhow, it's just we need to delve more deeply to understand what is happening, to be able to, be able to see forward and, and maybe hopefully find solutions. I think it's a bit far-fetched, but at least we should give it a try. Okay, so let's try to go a little bit deeper then uh, since you suggested it uh, in this topic. You say uh, the youth, um, they are resisting the occupation. But some of them are also resisting uh, Ramallah, the leadership, mm -hmm. as you uh, alluded to, and the internal Palestinian politics. And you talked about uh, that the, this generation, you know, they are, they are born uh, or grown up after Oslo, but they know no solution. There's no peace uh, for them. They've never seen. But they also don't remember any Palestinian national movement aside from the PA and whatever. Uh, can you, I have to ask you this because uh, you've had the Jerusalem uh, file in uh, mm -hmm. your lap for a few years as Jerusalem minister for the PA. What in your opinion can the Palestinian leadership do better with its youth? Well, Again, I'm going to be very honest and straightforward. We like that. I think there is, you know, the Palestinian Authority over the years have become more and more accountable to the donor community because they, they sustain it. And I have to say that in the year 2000, we had a balanced budget. And now we probably finance one-third of the budget. So really, we, we really need that money to come from the donor community. But also, we lose, we lose our, in, the, in a sense... The, the, the right to say no and the right to, to define our own priorities. But you get busy with the donors, you get busy with also all these, I mean, who doesn't come to, to Ramallah? I mean, prime minister, you think, my goodness, something should happen with all these visits. Every president, every prime minister, every minister. I mean, it gets dizzying and we're only going backwards. I mean, all the time we're going backwards. And the whole project of a two-state solution, which was approved by the the PLO, by the Palestine Liberation Organization in 88, 
is failing miserably and, and bringing a lot of misery to us. So on one hand, there is a political program that was adopted uh, after we have been convinced by the world. I mean, you know, who didn't speak to Arafat to convince him to do that? But it's failing miserably. The, the PA is not accountable to its own people, and, over, and the years pass by without us noticing. I mean, look, we're 50 years down the occupation. We're 20-something years from Oslo, uh, 23, 24 years. And um, the, 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 I think the PA lost connection with the street. And, and this is a reality, and this is a big mistake. A big mistake because one of the most important source of any authority is, is the, the acceptance of the grassroots. It's... And, and it's supposed to be serving the grassroots. And, and, and the PA cannot serve the grassroots because the, the occupation measures are much more influential. The reality on the ground is set by Israel. Whatever the PA does is like a drop in the ocean. And it isn't, I mean, let's, we have to admit it, we have inherited Arafat when, when the PLO came back, many of the people came back. He just created an inflated public sector to absorb these people, and, and we're a bit stuck with that, so it's not necessarily a very effective and efficient kind of public sector. Again, in my book, this cannot be accepted, you know, when we need good services, etc. So we have this gap anyhow. It has its reasons. It's not acceptable, and it's a weakening point. It's a point that is weakening us very much. Uh, but also, let's not forget that the whole program of the two-state solution is, is, is completely disappearing off the map. And that's what these young people grew up with. I mean, actually, I was surprised once I flew from Tel Aviv to Amman, uh, because normally I go through the bridge, and looking down from the plane, I mean, we have the small Palestinian hamlets, and the huge, extensive settlements. I mean, we kid ourselves if we think we have anything left from the West Bank, really. So, again, in a reality like this, you, you see the rift between two, not even two generations, because the PA is mainly people in the 70s and the 80s, or maybe a little bit younger, and then now you have like three generations down the line. Uh, so, yes, we do have internal problems. Uh, there are disappointments with the ongoing situation for, for the various reasons, uh, I'm saying. Now, we're a bit caught between two fires because to fight against the PA, we know, uh, even these young people would know that it, it will weaken us because we have the occupation always lingering in the background. And that's another source of great frustration, I think, for, for young people. Yeah. Can I interfere as non-ex-minister? <laughs> of the PA. Please. Um, <laughs> and bring honesty. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I'll try. Um, you know, my perspective is a little bit different. <coughs> I think that um, the whole Oslo was misread from the Palestinian side. They did not understand the hidden text or hidden Israeli agenda behind Oslo. Mm, which is, and I'm, I'm blaming myself too. I was not a member of the Oslo team, but I was a member of the uh, beginning of the negotiations between the Palestinians and the Israelis in Madrid conference and Washington talks aftermath. I think the Israeli agenda is to create Palestinian municipal authority. Not more than that. Palestinian authority who is managing to collect the garbage, to contain <coughs> the people, to control the, the young people, and to defend its own interest. They managed to create um, an army of bureaucrats in the Palestinian Authority who are not ready to give up their jobs, and they are ready to fight in order to keep these, these jobs. And I think we Palestinians actually felt in this trap totally. You can create or bring the best administration in the world to the West Bank. Non-corrupted, not corrupted, with a very progressive program of administration and creation, they will not do much better than Mr. Abbas. Because they have control of nothing including his travel from Ramallah to Amman is uh, with Israeli permission, including any sewage system that we are constructing, any new 
Palestinian housing project. Everything is in need of an Israeli permission. We can, you can do nothing. Therefore, I think uh, sometimes we are shouting on the Palestinian Authority, you are corrupted, you are etc., etc., which is partly true. But this is not the whole picture. The whole picture is much worse than that. The Palestinian Authority managed through the creation of Oslo Agreement to be really the guard of the Israeli occupation, to guard the Israeli occupation. And actually, in the last, I would say, 10, 15 years, um, most of the attacks against Israel were stopped by the, Palestinian Israeli, by the Palestinian Authority and not by the Israeli secret police who are demonstrating their arms. Hurrah, we did it. Really, what, who did it is the Palestinian uh, security forces who managed to contain most of our youth. Therefore, the young people are resisting now against both of them, both of, of, of the authorities, the Palestinian Authority as well as the Israeli, as the Israeli Authority. And I will tell you, among my students, uh, my opinion is considered uh, very, very traditional and very modest. Reactionary. And perhaps. reactionary, may, maybe. <laughs> They, they, are, they want to dismantle that authority tomorrow. If I will ask my students, and sometimes I have in my classroom 200 students, if I ask them, uh, what do you want to, to, to do with this authority, they'll tell you immediately, the absolute majority of them dismantle it. We don't need it. Because we want the Israeli occupation directly and not to be controlled through their agents. Therefore, uh, regardless who is in the, sitting in Ramallah, Mr. Abu Mazen or Mr. Arafat or, or Ms. Hind Khund oh, Khuri, <laughs> they will not manage to do much better. This is my... Sorry. Um, do you want a rebuttal? Can, no, I mean, I know this is a point of view and many people repeat that, but things are never black and white. I mean, you know. Absolutely. And I, of course, there is mismanagement. I mean, of course, I can vouch to that. But it's not like everybody is there rotten. It's not like everybody in the PA is not concerned about the situation, does not ache for what's happening for our young people and for our families and for the mothers. And I, I, don't, I think this is taking it to Or that the PA is serving only its own interests because they have jobs. And there are people like this. But you, know, you take this with a grain of salt, yeah. and things are always like in the gray area. That's I guess all we I could also to say. add uh, that... Uh, the PA does certainly not uh, exist in a vacuum. Um, the Western uh, policy uh, is a very big part of that picture, yeah. both in creating it and sustaining it and paying for it, and etc. And we started to talk about the Gaza war, and maybe one of the things that was missing from yeah. that road to the war was perhaps the, the Western policies of maybe not supporting the moderate forces in Palestinian politics uh, enough in the state-building efforts, etc., even though uh, there's a huge international aid regime. So I definitely want to second your opinion on the, on the gray areas, and uh, that bigger picture is also part of that. But I, I was very... Um, uh, intrigued by uh, your 200 students who want to throw the PA and the trash bin. To me, it seems like this international aid regime that we just talked about has, and you alluded to it uh, just now, has, uh, it's a sort of a tranquilizer <laughs> on Palestinian civil society. Nasmi, would you say that there is a... If you take your students uh, as an example, yeah. is there any um, political activism uh, with a direction that you can see? Um, look, our society was mostly was served by civil society organizations before the creation of PA. Of, of, you know, we were doing most of the education, healthcare, uh, women uh, associations, etc. Most of the services before 1993 were done by the civil society, charitable organizations, church organizations, or Islamic organizations, etc. So uh, the civil society is an essential element in our structure. Now, we have to see that the creation of the Palestinian uh, uh, Authority led that 
some of the jobs or a lot of the jobs of the civil society has to be transferred to the Palestinian Authority. They created ministers and ministries for all of, of kinds of jobs. So therefore, the civil society began to be weakened. And I think that also the international community was a great help to the Palestinian Authority on the course of the civil society. Sometimes the international community played the game, they supported the civil society against the Palestinian Authority, etc. But uh, this is part of, of the game that is played on the, in the, on the ground of Palestine. Um, now, uh, I think that uh, uh, without civil society, uh, uh, any kind, any talk about uh, democracy, democracy law, rule of law, uh, uh, is in vain. I think civil society is a leading element in creating a healthy society in all aspects of, of life. Uh, uh, therefore, I think that uh, the international community has to continue to support the civil society. I'm not saying on the cause of the Palestinian Authority, no. But also, uh, the, their part has to be uh, uh, reserved for, for the for future, I would say, more civil uh, uh, way of... Uh, of development in our community. Mm -hmm. May I? <laughs> yes, of course. If... Um, you know, the issue of civil society is, um, maybe even the way I see it also in Palestine, is extremely important because without a strong civil society actually to balance power and to correct, you know, and to monitor what the executive is doing, etc., you, you, lose, you lose focus. Mm. And as a matter of fact, and, and Nazmi is right, that in the first intifada and until Oslo, civil society was holding the society together, even under occupation, mm. and we were not doing badly, as a matter of fact. Mm. And there was a lot of solidarity, internal solidarity in the Palestinian community. And I think after, in the 90s and on, and, and I remember once that I read that Bernard Lewis, you know, who's the historian, etc., who has been um, recommending that donor aid should be focusing more, in the early 90s this came, to local governments and to civil society. Now, I worked in development a good part of my life, and uh, I noticed that the support that was given to civil society was given to new NGO kind of thing, and not to the structural civil society, meaning the women movement, uh, the, uh, the unions, and you know, these, are, these are the important elements of, of civil society. So these were weakened, and instead now we have something like 3,500 NGOs that sort of divide that you know, public opinion. I mean, we have, I think somebody said 1,700 NGO in East Jerusalem. You know, how the hell can they agree on one agenda? I mean, impossible. Uh, especially that there is no real authority there for, for, for the Palestinians. So, again, I also want to say that donor money has sustained a Palestinian uh, resilience. I mean, we, we can't forget that. We also have, like, maybe the political intifada did not come up with good results, but we have a cultural intifada, and here we have this young poet here, but we have this flourishing of theater, of, uh, you know, visual arts, of cinema, of, you know, what have you. And, and, and again, I remember how art life was like in the 70s, and believe me, it was very pathetic. I'm not a connoisseur, but... I mean, it was really hard to appreciate art in the 70s. And now, it's incredible. I mean, so, so and that was financed by Donum, I have to say, and, and other things. So they, they contribute to Palestinian resilience, but we have to be aware <coughs> that donor money came only through, by the approval of Israel. And I don't know, there must be a policy there somewhere where that money could not influence political development and or Palestinian solidarity or strengthening of political parties. For example, mm. the PA was strengthened and, uh, you know, it's the PLO that made the decision, you know, it's the, the decision-making body for the, you know, uh, for the Palestinians. The PLO has been weakened. Uh, actually, different factions who, uh, who, who, uh, who are part of the PLO are functionaries, you know, they're paid by the PA, which is a bit bizarre, but there were efforts to weaken PLO and strengthen PA, which, and again, one of the deformities, unfortunately, of Oslo. And we shouldn't fall for it. I mean, I don't blame only the PLO or, you know, the President Abbas or, uh, or the PA, because where are the other political factions? And we had, like, the Popular Front usually had the most intelligent, you know, intellectuals within its ranks. I said, where are you? Where are your programs? 
and, 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 they, and they don't exist. And that's maybe it's part of the weakening of the left in general, you know, and the whole world. That, but I say these small factions are small, not very significant. They don't come with impressive programs because you asked where is the political vision that can help these young people, uh, you know, consolidate their, this energy into something really useful to, to, to take us forward. And we have, I have to admit, this is missing. And it's a painful reality, but then here, let's say, we're to blame for it. I mean, I, there is a lot now, the young intellectuals are coming up, but they don't see the vision for the future within a two-state solution. There is a lot of debate on the binational state and, and that kind of thing. A very serious, very intellectually very solid kind of debate. Much better than our generation did, I have to admit. So that's very promising in a sense. It takes time, but we learn that history takes time <laughs> beyond our lifetime. Uh, but it's, they're very, very interesting signals of, of very serious, and includes, I think, Palestinians and Israelis mm. uh, with a new frame of mind, uh, new models. I think that they, they don't want to deal with what we dealt with, I mean, uh, in a way that this whole program of a two-state, and God knows God how knows much... God knows if this, that's what they have to deal with. Because, no, uh, I, I does, they don't seem to be interesting. That's what I'm saying. They're yeah. trying to come up with a new model. Uh, but they're a bit late because if we speak, if young people say we don't want the Palestinian Authority, but what is the alternative? We don't have an exit strategy in yeah. place. And, and that's very dangerous. I don't see the, the demise of the Palestinian Authority tomorrow. Who's going to be paying salary? I mean, what's going to happen? Uh, you know, Israel is not going to jump in and pay us unemployment the second day if it you know, takes the occupation again. So... Again, it's, we, we fall into, into, into like, you know, shorthand solutions that to me sound scary uh, and um, let's hope it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't happen. No. We need to work out a transition that actually, actually that will allow people to sustain their present um, economic standards, what we have today, because over the years we lost what we have. We're all poorer. Our life, quality of life has gone down you know, really, I don't know, maybe 300%. I mean, I, again, I'm talking with a historical perspective. Um, we lost a lot of property. I mean, in Jerusalem, we have, we own land. I mean, we own, we own land from my father. But, you know, like, we have a partner who's in the West Bank, but he's considered absent because he's behind the wall. And, and you know, and so we, we can't really use that land if we do the custodian of the absentee property will come and, 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 uh, and, and control it. And we're stuck in a catch-22. Uh, again, you see, so it, it is a very difficult situation to deal with, but we have to also acknowledge our part in it. But maybe we are the wrong persons to be asked about the youth. <laughs> I'm, I, I mean, my he should, have the last, he should have the last word, uh, you know. I, I, Those I, were your I, words. I you did know, not say it. You know, uh, 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 I have problems to understand them, to understand my students. I think they are a new generation with a new perspective. They are much better than our generation. They have international connections with all of their social media. They know what's going on all around the world, not only in their uh, 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 home. Uh, and they are much open-minded. They are less dogmatic than our generation. They are less uh, bound with ideologies. My 70s generation, Everybody has to have an ideology. They do not need it anymore. They are destroying most of the structures that we thought they are appropriate for, for, for them. And I am uh, still open for surprises from this young generation, which kind of uh, uh, vision for the future they are going to develop. Uh, believe me, this is a discussion that uh, uh, the, the students are discussing among themselves. And they are not anymore satisfied with all the solutions that we propose to them. I don't know what, uh, what kind of solution they, they have, but they are really in a very, in, they are uh, politicized in their own uh, way, not in my old-fashioned way. I, I think uh, political engagement in my generation is totally dif differently defined as their own engagement. So we do not have to impose our own structures on them and tell them, follow up what PLO... No, but uh, they will so, listen to us. So, so, so in, the, in the 60s and 70s, 
They do not <laughs> understand it. It does not fit with their mentality. It does not fit with their situation. So uh, uh, sometimes... Okay, so this is... In one way, this is excellent news because Alhamdulillah. now <laughs> we have a new uh, president yeah. in the U.S. who okay. certainly is thinking outside the box. Okay. <laughs> so there might be a good uh, uh, or bad or bad okay. uh, match. But I okay. thought this is uh, uh, a very interesting dynamic here yeah. that you're touching upon with talking about that yeah. the youth is ready. To for other, they don't need to inherit a set of solutions. So the two-state solution, this is what we've been talking about. You know, this has been the solution since Oslo. Yeah. Um, there have been talks about a one-state reality or a one-state solution, uh, but mostly this hasn't been given a lot of attention for various reasons. Now... At the press conference with uh, Netanyahu, Trump, of course, said uh, two states, one state. I thought the two state was looking good, but if you guys want the one state, I'll be going with that. So it's really up to the parties. I'll do whatever. And suddenly, this one state solution is everywhere. <laughs> he woke up the world somehow. He woke up the world. And I saw, I read an interview with uh, Ahmed Tibi in, uh, that said that he will be <laughs> prime, minister prime minister of this one, of this one state. Uh, so Trump says two states, one state, whatever the parties choose. Ask me, what's your what? choice? <laughs> <coughs> it's not a matter of shopping. <laughs> one, two, three states. Um, look, um, we are living now between the Mediterranean and Jordan in one state solution. This is, this is, no, this is one state solution where you have one people, I mean the Israelis, controlling another people, controlling every small thing in our lives. So this is one state solution. One state solution in this form is an apartheid solution. Absolutely. Now, I have, to def uh, I have to be realistic and uh, sometimes optimistic. Uh, look, I believed in the two-state solution for so long. Maybe, maybe too long. Maybe I was one of the early Palestinians who believed in the two-state solution since 1973. Before Arafat. Before Arafat. We imposed it on Arafat. We imposed it on Arafat so, uh, 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 with a short-term uh, uh, political uh, 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 solution. <clears throat> so I believed in the two-state solution. And I was one of those who were putting PLO under uh, uh, pressure to go to Madrid conference. And we took Arafat to Madrid conference. And he accepted the Oslo agreement which is done all under the name of two-state solution. What happened after Oslo is that the Israelis began to settle, to rabbit their settlement activities in the West Bank. I don't know now. Uh, we have three, uh, uh, tripled or more than tripled the number of, uh, of settlers uh, than before 1993. And they spread all over the West Bank. Blocks outside blocks, so-called so legal settlements, illegal settlements, according to the Israeli definitions. So systematically, the Israelis managed to kill on the ground the two-state solution. Systematically, without uh, asking anybody. And with little protest from the European Union, little protest from the Palestinian side, little protest from the United Nations. But they managed systematically to destroy the two-state solution. Now... We have between the Mediterranean and the Jordan Valley about 50% Palestinians and 50% Israelis, Israeli Jews. I don't know who is more, maybe 51, 49, but we, you cannot never tell. Maybe the Israeli side only can tell you the exact statistics because they are in charge of everything, including my own statistics. 
what kind of solution do, do the Israelis looking for? This two-state solution where cantons of the West Bank will be called the Palestinian state without overall security, without sovereignty, without control over the borders, this kind of state I don't want. And I don't think that there is any Palestinian who will accept it. Is in the horizon a possibility that an Israeli government will be established, which is capable to dismantle, I don't know how many settlements, and to move them to, uh, back to Israel in order to create geographic continuity of so-called Palestinian state in the rest of the West Bank? I doubt it. I cannot see this government is coming. I can tell you that the trend is clear in Israel. More and more people towards, uh, going towards a right, right-wing politics. So if I understand this, again, I understand what's going on around me in the Arab world, where we have a, a huge chaos, and this chaos will not end in the coming 10, 15 years, will not retain back to its, I would say, solid political structures. Therefore, the Israelis will continue to create the one-state solution. What remains for us is, really, we have to go inside our society in a deep discussion about the issue, what to do. We cannot continue to ignore it under the title of the two-state solution, which is the, uh, because of the international legitimacy, because of the UN resolutions, etc., which are very important, which the support of the European Union for the two-state solution, we could see the, the, uh, the cry of everybody after Trump's statement saying, two-state solution, two-state solution. Now, even Trump is hesitant about his statement. <clears throat> but I'm not sure that he, he has to be hesitant about his solution. I think in my society, we have to discuss in uh, slowly, but also on a clear uh, floor, uh, is the two-state solution still possible or not? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to give you an absolute uh, answer today because I'm also personally in the process of rethinking about whether it's possible or not. I'm traveling like Hint everywhere in the West Bank because I'm an archaeologist. I have to visit a lot of archaeological sites. I, have, I take my students to archaeological excavations all over. And I see that realities are changed on the ground every day. And if this is the situation will continue in the coming few years, maybe we have to say, okay, we have to fight for one man, one vote. Is this one man, one vote is a threat for the Israelis? Yes, because, because they have to answer, uh, to give the answer to that question. Do they want to live in a Jewish uh, uh, state as they claim every day, every day in the uh, statements of, of Netanyahu? The Palestinians have to recognize Israel as a Jewish state. And I promise you that if we do it tomorrow, okay, he will create a new element to tell now, if the Palestinians will not uh, accept that the overall security over the West Bank will continue in the Israeli hands, we will never accept the two-state solution. And if we do it, the day after will come. If the Palestinians will not accept that, the borders will continue in the hands of the Israelis' control. But that's what he said later, I think. Uh, exactly. He said, and he Israeli will continue to create, to create all of these elements. If, this is, if my analysis is true, then uh, we, maybe we have to accept realities and say, we want to live in one state. The Israelis have to give answers if they accept us or not. If they do not accept us, then they have to tell us what to do. And I'm ready to be guided by Danny this evening to tell me what to do. Two states, no. One state, no. I don't know what is the solution then. Now, well, you know, I just want to add something to what Nasmi said, and you always agree with him. But just like... <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, I think... I think I don't know, we, we work with some wishful thinking. You know, maybe in retrospect, I think Israel never planned to, to have a two-state solution. It was not in the book from the beginning. You know, in Oslo, Israel have recognized the PLO, not the Palestinian state. And we have recognized Israel. And if you look at, you know, the Israelis are very good. You know, they do the work thoroughly, mapping, planning, uh, way beyond our capacities. But if you look from the Ayalon plan in the early 70s, to the Sharon plan, to the, to the Netanyahu plan, uh, the, the idea was to separate the demography. It wasn't about the state, but they 
badly need to separate the Israeli demography from the Palestinian demography. And that's what the wall did, for example. That's what all the system of checkpoints and all that, all these geopolitical measures in the West Bank, that's, it has separated Israeli from Palestinian. You know, we have now, <coughs> since the early 90s, you have a whole, more than a generation now, who, they don't meet. You know, I grew up, the Israelis, we were in each other's, you know, towns and villages, etc. Uh, but now these young people, they, the Palestinians don't know Israelis at all, except as soldiers. But the same goes for the Israelis. They're not allowed. If you go into every Palestinian village, there is a sign that says Israelis are not allowed in here. You know, it's very dangerous uh, for, for them. So again, I think the Palestinian state was never in the books. And Israel is just pursuing its policies. They're still seeking ways... To, uh, to, to separate the demography, uh, and they are, Israel is already defining reality on the ground. The reality that we have today, that we live in these ghettos, you know, in the halls of the Gruyere, all over the West Bank. Again, because they're worried about demography, they already got rid of Gaza. They really want that separation, Gaza-West Bank, and they will never allow it back. And I mean, I was in Paris in, when, when the separation happened, when the Gaza war happened, not the Gaza war, when the Fatah and Hamas were fighting. Uh, and I, was, I always heard, ah, uh -huh, we will have the three-state solution. Probably this is what is exactly in the making, I think. Gaza and, we know, Igura uh, Igland, is it his name? Danny, yeah, correct Igland. me. Yeah, head of national security at one point. He, he came up with propositions to create a Palestinian state in Gaza and extended Gaza into the Sinai. Uh, and then in the West Bank, they, they're ready tomorrow, even the settlers, they will give us uh, areas A and B. It's about 38, 40% of the West. They will give it to us tomorrow, and we can create the Palestinian empire. I mean, no problem, and we will have the flag, and we will have all the ministers and the ambassadors you want, uh, but it will only be a geography that is not tenable, you know, no room for development, no room for our children to be there. And um, I think this is where we're heading, as a matter of fact. This is where we're heading. So I don't know what is exactly Israel has in mind in terms of the demographic solution, which is sometimes a bit scary to me because, so what will they do with these five million Palestinians who exist between the Mediterranean and the Jordan Valley? You know, what exactly they have in mind and, and why not another war? Not only in Gaza, you never know what happens if something happens in Jordan, some more happens in the West Bank. Uh, I mean, I don't know. It's, I'm always scared when I remember what Benny Morris said, that Israel didn't finish a job in 1948, and that was a mistake. So again, I think the future looks scary and bleak. Uh, in, in my view, but I may be, I'm not being pretentious here, but I'm just scared because I feel there has to be more deeper analysis of the situation, very careful and cautious planning, so that we avoid more tragedies, uh, Palestine. So, I mean, we've seen what's happening in the region. I mean, whoever dreamt that Syria would have 10, 10 million refugees, whoever dreamt that people would be drowning in the sea the way they have been doing, and all those immigrations. So, and, and I see the Nakba of 1948. You know, it happened, and it just con 1948. And now we have the Syrians going all over the place. We could have another Nakba. I mean, it could. It could. And it's not only scary, it's so terribly painful that in the 21st century that people are concerned, but we don't go through the extra effort to make sure that, you know, like no more tragedies. I mean, the Second World War at the end is not again should apply to everybody. And so I'm, I have to admit the, the future looks bleaker than just the demise of the two-state solution. It, it could be much, much worse than that if we don't find the formula of accepting each other's uh, accepting the inclusiveness of what Palestine is, uh, accepting the Palestinian people as, you know, if Israel's the Jewish people wants to have the state, we have accepted that part of the country, but it's based on partition. Uh, and it can never be, that country can never be exclusive to, to only one people. Or, and certainly on the basis of religion, I sometimes often, so what legitimacy is the world talking about? Are they talking about biblical legitimacy? Are they talking about Balfour now? We're celebrating 100 years to Balfour Declaration this year, which was incorporated in the San Remo Agreement. So is that the legitimacy? I think that's the world is committed to that kind of legitimacy sometimes, and to biblical legitimacy, not to international law. You know, the bottom line. And, and this kind of schizophrenia in a way, I mean, you know, 
or hypocrisy. I mean, this cannot go on. We need clarity from the world, not me. I mean, the younger people. History will demand a little bit more clarity and, and more credible positioning that makes sense, that is convincing, where policies are translated into action. We, I don't take seriously any policy position from the West because if it's not bringing change on the ground, for me, you know, what is it? And are we sustaining the clash of civilization? Because I think actually on Trump, the first thing Trump does is talk about uh, moving uh, the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And that means in support of biblical, uh, either biblical legitimacy or the Balfour legitimacy, you know, who has given the homeland only to one part of the people of Palestine. And, and I think it's, uh, to bring the, the, the discussion back to Jerusalem, it was a geopolitical trick because the minute you talk about Jerusalem, first you're transforming the conflict into a religious conflict, which is actually a political conflict. It can only have a political solution. But the minute you speak about Jerusalem as the capital of exclusive capital of Israel, eternal and united, then you're transforming definitely the conflict into a religious conflict. And it has been part of a policy for a while. I mean, that's Netanyahu's line. That's the, the extreme right in Israel. But it also feeds into the clash of civilization kind of logic. The Judeo-Christian world against the Muslim world. This is the logic that is sustaining the war on terror. So, I, I mean, I, I can't pretend to know all that, but it's, it's a bit, you know, Jerusalem has this important role to play. So you only move the embassy and you bring all these geopolitical matters in hand and, and, you, and you feed them. So... You know, again, Jerusalem is, is so important in, in many ways, and we need to be aware of this, unless I'm hallucinating a bit. I'm, I'm not sure. Well, our time is up, and it sounded like Osil maybe planted that last uh, segment here about the Jerusalem being the center of everything, because it's certainly a very good teaser for the rest of the program uh, in the next coming days. Uh, but before uh, we leave you, uh, I wanted uh, to ask everybody to uh, give both Nasmi and Hind a warm applause, and thanks for coming. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Lit House, the English language podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, Literaturhuset. Music by Apotek.